If I asked you to design the school of the future, what does it look like? It's a hard question. You may be imagining something like the Matrix, where you get plugged in and learn a new subject in seconds. Can you fly that thing? Not yet. Operator. Tank, I need a pilot program for a B-212 helicopter. Hurry. This isn't that ludicrous. Schools probably will become virtual. You'll be able to log in from anywhere, stroll around the campus with your avatar while never having to leave the couch. Or maybe a future school will feature lots of robots, like in the Jetsons. Now, now, Elroy, come down. You know how the principal feels. This is all possible. After all, I can't tell the future and neither can you. But at least for the next little while, it seems like the school of the future looks a lot like the school of today. At least with a little work around the edges. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Josh Nicholas. Today, we're going to investigate how technology is changing the way we learn. Now, I know when I was attending school and university, I was spotting problems and solutions left and right. That's what you like in your 20s. Everything sucks and you have all the answers. And school is one of those things most of us in Australia have in common. We probably all have ideas about how it could be improved. We all went to similar-looking buildings in similar-looking clothes, studied similar things for similar hours. Notice how often I use the word similar there. That was always my issue with school and uni, how it treated us all the same, like we all learn at the same rate or have similar aptitudes and work habits. I know I didn't. I have a short attention span. I was always daydreaming through lectures and drawing pictures in my notebooks. But for a little while there, it seemed like technology was going to rescue us from this. You may remember a few years ago, there was a whole bunch of talk about massive online courses, or MOOCs. The idea was, instead of attending your local university, getting crammed into lecture halls with a bunch of other people when you'd rather be outside, everything would be put on the web. It would be education on demand. You never had to get out of your pajamas. One of the early evangelists of this idea was a man named Peter Norvig. At the time, he was teaching artificial intelligence at Stanford and gave a famous TED talk about his experiments. And this is me teaching Introduction to Artificial Intelligence to 200 students at Stanford University. Now, the students and I enjoyed the class, but it occurred to me that while the subject matter of the class is advanced and modern, the teaching technology isn't. In fact, I use basically the same technology as this 14th century classroom. This is a snippet from Norwig's talk given in 2012. He's showing the audience an old fresco of a 14th century lecture in Bologna in Italy. There's a man on a podium and a bunch of people sitting in pews in front of him. Note the textbook, the sage on the stage, and the sleeping guy in the back. Just like today. In today's world, I'm the guy sleeping in the back. 
But online courses were meant to be the answer to this problem. We wouldn't need to sit through long lectures like this. We wouldn't all need to be crammed in together. Rather, education would be personalised. You could watch what you wanted, when you wanted, and you could re-watch them if you needed to. For a while, MOOCs really took off. Here's how Norwig's first trial went. We challenged ourselves to create an online class that would be equal or better in quality to our Stanford class, but to bring it to anyone in the world for free. We announced the class on July 29th, and within two weeks, 50,000 people had signed up for it. And that grew to 160,000 students from 209 countries. Yeah. Within only a few weeks, they found 160,000 nerds who wanted to learn about artificial intelligence. But this wasn't confined to this example. Within a couple of years, you could take similar online courses on a whole range of topics, from some of the most prestigious schools in the world. But how did all this fare? Well... Now, the class ran 10 weeks, and in the end, about half of the 160,000 students watched at least one video each week and over 20,000 finished all the homework, putting in 50 to 100 hours. They got this statement of accomplishment. That's right. Only about 12% actually followed through on everything in the course and got a certificate at the end. That's a huge failure rate. And despite all the improvements in online course delivery since then, it looks like that number has stayed pretty constant. Only about 5 to 10% of people who started online course like the one Peter Norvig created actually finished that course. So it seems like there's something missing from MOOCs. Something that keeps people involved in a course, keeps them motivated and striving to do well. But what is it? If we can't figure this out, we can't really do online education. Is it that you need to spend money? After all, most MOOCs are free, so it kind of makes sense that it'd be one of the first things you ditch when your schedule gets busy or when it gets too tough. That could be part of it. But speaking to Professor Shirley Alexander, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Technology, Sydney, it seems like we miss a lot when we view education as something that can be just chucked up on the web, a passive activity where you just watch some videos. The kinds of technologies you describe are what I refer to as the broadcast model of education, that you just tell students things via video, via a textbook, and so on. And to do that, is relatively easy and relatively cheap. Um, so to produce a video, I mean, almost anyone can do it now with their iPhone and do a, a job that's good enough that students can listen to it and and um, and take out what they want from it. Um, so that's the broadcast model of education. But I think um, I think we need our students deserve more than that. You wrote something a couple of years ago about this very distinction, but how a lot of these new, I guess, new forms, these new online platforms are very much about the content rather than some of the other skills, some of the other things that happen in the classroom. And I notice that when I'm in when I'm in a, in a tutorial, I often learn as much from the takes that my fellow students are, t- are having as I do from just yeah. engaging with the teacher. That's exactly right. I I personally don't see much future for the broadcast model of education. Everyone, everyone's doing it now. I don't see um, much point in students paying large amounts of money 
um, to come to a university to to be involved in the broadcast model of education. You can do it for free online from Stanford, MIT, London School of Economics, wherever you want. Um, I think what we have to offer in a university has to be a much greater value add on top of that broadcast model. Sure, it's the base. I mean, you have to learn something. But what our job is, is to help students make sense of that information and to build their own understanding at the same time as they're developing other skills like problem solving, critical thinking and so on. And um, that it's not impossible to do that online, but 99% of online learning is just simply the broadcast model. But while there seem to be flaws in thinking of education as content, as something you passively consume, that doesn't mean watching videos and doing exercises online should be completely absent. They're valuable, they should be part of the mix. At least for the next little while, both offline and online have big roles to play in education. It doesn't really make sense to round up a bunch of people and make them sit through a lecture in a theatre. Lectures are, by their very nature, individual experiences. You consume them largely by yourself, and so it makes sense to watch a video at home or on the train or whenever it's convenient for you. But campuses do have roles to play. You need to marry what you've learned in your lecture or by reading a book with something else. We are social creatures, and there is an incredible amount of value in meeting people face to face, learning off real teachers and fellow students, working collaboratively, and getting support and encouragement when you run into a wall. It's called blended learning. When you talk about putting a value add on the broadcast model, mm. that is something which I've I've seen talked about in a couple of other areas. Like I, I know uh, Khan Academy, for example, is advocating an idea for primary schools where you watch a lecture at home and then you come in and you solve problems and the teacher is there to kind of, if you have a problem solving the problem, mm. they're there for you. Is that sort of something that could come into university where instead of me sitting through a lecture, a live lecture, I could sit through a pre-taped one and then I come and discuss whatever has happened with my lecturer? UTS is just spending, about the end of spending $1.2 billion building a campus to do exactly that. That's what our whole vision for learning is at UTS. We call it learning.futures. And um, so in, in building our three new buildings, there's not a single standard lecture theatre in those new buildings. It's designed to do exactly as you say. The students watch something or read something before they come onto campus. Then once they're here, um, all our spaces have been designed to, for students to work collaboratively on problem-solving case studies, a whole range of things that really add value to what they've done on their own. There's absolutely no point dragging students in to sit in a lecture theatre as one of 600 students. Mm. They can do that at home and they should do that at home. Um, So we're making a huge investment in exactly that kind of learning. But it's not just UTS or universities in general that are pursuing this strategy. Even the most technical of institutions realise the value of face-to-face contact. Take Academy XI. It's a little school in Sydney that offers short courses on some very modern subjects, like user design and virtual reality. These are things you may imagine doing over the internet. I certainly did. But when I met up with co-founder Ben Wong, 
He explained how important physical interaction is in learning even the most high-tech subjects. A lot of these things um, really need that real-life scenario to be able to go through and understand the experience. The theory, it can be kept online, that's great. Uh, and we are looking to move into a blended, um, form, a blended learning format. Uh, but there are a lot of interactions now that you need the high engagement um, of a face-to-face -face environment uh, because ultimately if you're looking to um, understand these concepts, you can't just talk about them or listen to them. You need to do them to be able to understand and embed them. And you do need that, that feeling of help and support. Otherwise, it's like, how are you going to drive through and, and, and over, over, you know, get over that barrier? In school, you, you sometimes have that good teacher who'd motivate you, who'd put you through that. Or you had other students that would motivate you because you'd see them helping you. So I still think, yeah, I think you do need that interpersonal skill. You do need that, um, that, that feeling of, of being somewhere and having an experience in itself. There it is again. The idea that learning is more than something you receive. It's something you do. It's something you apply. And right now, that's best done in the physical company of peers. Online is going to be the future, and it is. Um, but I feel like that we're still in that process where we've got to get there, right? Like, we haven't perfected the level of engagement. I think there's some statistics saying that, like, um, people, like, People that have taken online courses don't really follow through um, to finish it. Like they start it and they don't finish it. Um, and so what we're trying to do is bridge that gap of, of making sure that there's still that level of engagement and there's still that level of, of um, learning. Uh, and then once we get to that point where technology is so advanced that we can replicate that engagement, and that's when I think that um, everything will be online or maybe it will be um, a matter of remote learning um, where you can do it online but then do it with friends or other people within that region. Um, that's something we're looking at also in working on in the background. And that's the problem about doing online programs is that you don't have that motivation to put through, you don't have responsibility, you don't have accountability. Back when you were in school, you had a teacher to tell you. Now, I mean, we're working with professionals, so it's not like you're gonna get marked down and you're gonna get in trouble, um, but there is that sort of expectation that if you're in a, doing a classroom activity and you don't understand it or you haven't done the exercise, then there's that accountability there that you've got to go, okay, well, I need to step in my game. Uh, if, I, if I want to invest in my future um, and also, also not get embarrassed in class, then I've got to, I've got to actually uh, put some effort in. But there is something coming down the pipeline that offers the best of both worlds. Virtual reality. When I say that, you may be imagining a bunch of nerds wearing weird goggles, sitting on a couch, playing a game. And you're not entirely wrong there. It's the same technology. But it has incredible potential in areas like education. Just imagine, you don a pair of goggles and you walk into a classroom. It's the exact same experience as walking through a world in a video game. It feels like a real classroom. Scratched up desks and chairs and books and whatever other equipment you might need for your lesson. But more importantly, other people are in the classroom with you. Physically, they are sitting on their couches or in front of their computers at home, but through the internet, you've all been ported into the same room. You get the best of both worlds with this. You can log in from wherever you are, whenever it's most convenient, but you also get to interact with people just like you would on a real campus. They, have, um, they actually have virtual reality um, chemistry rooms now. You can go and do actual science labs in, 
So you could go sit there and um, do an actual experiment with real results, look into a real microscope and see what was changing. So think about the costs taken away from that, right? Expensive to build, but now you can have anyone um, be a sort of scientist, so to speak, because they have access to some of the best labs in the world, which is actually a virtual lab. So once we get there, that's, um, we're not far away, like you know, a couple of years, but that's something that we're working on at the moment. <laughs> so it's, it's in the pipeline. But... but virtual reality of this type on this scale isn't really possible yet. We don't yet have the right mix of computing power, internet access and programming to pull it off. Until we do, we will need to muddle along with our blended education, with online and offline worlds. So I wanted to speak to someone who is already doing it, who is already taking a class that is part online and part off. This is Emily. Probably about 90% of it is all online learning, so I don't have tutorials as such. It's probably between two and three hour lectures each week, um, which are just recordings that I listen to and go through the slides myself, so there's no video attached to it. Um, some subjects will require you and encourage you to post in discussion boards, but it's I'm finding it's not really a hugely common thing <laughs> it's like i think they realize that trying to force students to post in discussion boards generally doesn't generate much discussion so emily is studying a postgrad law degree she lives in sydney and works full-time and her university is based in melbourne nowadays most of what she does at uni takes place on a device she watches the lectures online on her phone occasionally doing a group assignment or some discussion on the web. But then she flies down to Melbourne for a weekend to have face-to-face -face time with her class, something she considers essential. Yeah, well, this was, for me, hugely about the convenience of it and you know, having it there to listen to whenever you want to. You can go on back and listen to it at any time. If I'm then studying and I'm reading something and I'm not not too sure about it. I can go back, see what they said in the lecture. I can listen to it on the train, mm. in bed, going for a <laughs> walk. You know, you can just listen to it whenever you want. And it just works so well around your life when you're working and have other things on. I don't think, I didn't think that I would be able to sit there once a week for, well, twice a week, possibly for three hours, you know, on a set night, week in, week out. It just fits into your life so much better, yeah. much more flexibly. The question for me was how this compared with what we might call normal education. I mean, almost anyone who has been to university in the past couple of years has had the ability to download and listen to lectures. But it seems to have a lot to do with the type, style and amount of engagement between Emily and her class. Rather than continual, almost forced interaction... Blended learning really only puts you together when it makes sense, when it really benefits what you're doing. While I found a lot in my undergrad that I just sat in tutorials, and while it was good for that discussion of points, more often than not, I was just sitting there fairly disinterested <laughs> in what was going on. And so it sort of, it only gets you engaged and for those parts where it's actually really beneficial to have to be sitting there with your peers and working with people on something rather than being forced to work with people for 
everything, I guess. So it's probably probably a bit of a personality type too, because I'm definitely one of those people where I love just getting into the fray and arguing with everybody. And obviously, mm. not everyone in the in the tutorial is exactly the same. They a lot of people just don't. That isn't their thing. Yeah, and it probably depends a bit on the subject as well. Um, with law, some of the subjects are so. This is what it is. Mm. There's, you know, not a lot Black of change. And white. Yeah, but then others, there is so much more scope for. You know, what you think about that and how it. What, how could we change this or why is it looked at this way? Why is it like that? But some subjects I found are just so, this is it. There's no <laughs> questioning it. There's no going around it. Emily has tasted both worlds. She did an undergrad degree in person, going to a campus a couple of times a week. She's now doing a postgrad degree largely in the cloud. So let's ask her, is there a space for the campus? Will it be around for a while? I think that there'll always be a space for for campuses and for students to learn. I mean, even with how online my degree is, there are still aspects that I just have to go to campus and spend a weekend or a couple of weekends there with the rest of my class, Mm. doing things together, collaborating. And I think even though it hasn't been huge, they've been so beneficial to have that aspect in there as well. And I guess, again, it depends of your type and possibly level of study in that because this is postgraduate, it's a lot more mature age students and you're probably supplementing your skills that you've already got as well Mm. through, you know, your working life and things like that. But I definitely think if I were to have done an entire undergraduate with no sort of contact with anyone, I don't think it would have developed (laughs) So many of the skills that you really need when you leave, yeah. And I got a similar answer, both from Professor Alexander and Ben Wong. It does seem like the physical aspect of school has a while to play yet. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SCR. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.